hear from the word of the Lord together this morning. Our passage of study will come from verse, uh, chapter, John chapter 13, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 18 and read down through verse 30. Let's hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, and then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus was the, had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Go buy what we need for the, fe- for the feast, and that, or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So, it, what could be more appropriate to a sermon during the Advent season than to open up with a uh, illustration from Lord of the Rings? Yes. Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I love Lord of the Rings. Uh, But if you are familiar with Lord of the Rings, you know of this great band of brothers. It's called, they're called the Fellowship of the Ring. They came together. They represent the five races of Middle Earth. And they came together in Rivendell, committed to one another to push back the forces of darkness that Lord um, Sauron uh, was attempting to do to uh, take over the world. And they knew, they knew how easily they could lose their lives during this quest. Um, But they refused to stand by. You know, we know the great story, right? If you're familiar with it, if you haven't heard it from Lord of the Rings, you've seen it somewhere else in cinematic theater or some sort. But here's the question. What happens when one of that band of brothers turns away? What happens when one of that band of brothers who has been so committed, like everyone else, has such genuine zeal for the mission that that band of brothers represents, turns, betrays, alters his heart, if you will. That's exactly what we find if you've read the first book or watched the first uh, movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. By the time they leave Rivendell, they're making their way together. Frodo's got this 
group of men who are going to, they have promised to make sure he gets all the way there. He's the only one who can carry the ring, as we all, if you know anything about the story, because um, it would tempt and corrupt everyone else. But as we're going on this journey, they find that temptation is too great for the children of man. And so Boromir, who's of that tribe, temptation gets the best of him. Vainglory gets the best of him. He's one of the children of men, if you will. That's the way I'm using it. And uh, he turns. He tries to take Frodo, take the ring from Frodo. He feels like he's strong enough to withstand the temptations of the ring's power. And uh, ultimately, in that entire encounter, two things happen. One is he ultimately dies that day. Boromir does. And Frodo is changed. What was a strong band of brothers, which would still remain a strong band of brothers, for Frodo had become a test of whether or not he could move on and could trust this band of brothers because he knew the power of the ring. And if he were to keep it around them, there was no telling what it might produce in this otherwise mission-oriented group of men. Sometimes our relationships can be the source of life's deepest pain. I dare say all of us have probably felt that at some point in our life. But what we're going to find in this text today is, and even though that is the case, and even though our Lord and Savior experienced this personally, and those who follow Jesus himself, his band, his disciples there, they would feel this pain we can be assured that his people, you and I, we can be assured of his sovereign mercies. We can be assured of his sovereign assurance and prerogatives and presence in the midst of life's greatest betrayals. That's going to be our main idea that we want to press into our hearts this morning. That sometimes life throws at us some very deeply painful realities in our relationships, but God is unswerved in his sovereign mercies towards his people. Now you will remember, if you were here last week, that Jordan kind of opened us up into this new kind of sequence in our time in the Gospel of John. And it's really Jesus is finally moving from public ministry to private ministry. Public ministry, he was preaching the gospel, doing signs and wonders. No one was believing. And now he's now shifted in chapter 13 to this private ministry. And this private ministry that Jesus is engaged in, he begins this private ministry with what you might call a, an act of initiation. And what is this act of initiation? Well, one of the most intimate acts that you could think of in the Bible for someone to wash someone else's feet could be probably one of the most intimate displays of service that you and I could imagine, especially in that day, like feet, and we know, I think most of us would say feet are disgusting and many of us don't want to touch feet. And, and you know, that's the last thing in the world we want to do is, and, and you think about how that would have been multiplied then, right? Because we have feet more, you know, uh, we have better feet covering today than maybe they would have had back in that day. So this is a significant act. And for it to come from the leader of this mission, the one to come from the one who's been preaching and teaching, the one who's been doing all these signs, the one who is the one sent from God, as he's been saying all the way from the beginning of John, for this to happen from him is um, unfathomable. 
And what Jesus is doing in that movement, as we were led through last week, is that he's calling his, these new citizens of heaven, right? these disciples and all the, who would follow disciples as they go and preach the gospel to the nations, he is calling them to a, a new kind of kingdom, a counter kingdom, if you will, uh, that's not marked by self-interest, that's not marked by self-service, but rather it's marked by radical commitment to each other, and more importantly, commitment to their God. That that's what marks the citizenship of heaven. And as you can imagine, that the disciples were awestruck by this reality, right? Like they were going, this does not compute. Everything I have been taught about leadership, everything I have witnessed about leadership is about the fact that these are people who are of another plane than me. And this is not what Jesus models. He models for himself self-serving his band of brothers there. So that one, they would multiply that, they would go back and do this themselves, but more than that, that ultimately, if he doesn't serve them, they can have no part in his kingdom. Again, we saw this last week, right? That the only way we can be part of his kingdom is that God serves us. Amen? And how does he serve us? We all know. By sending his son. And his son who dies on the cross for our sins. That's how God serves us. He, it's the ultimate act of service, if you will. And so they are awestruck by this, that, that this king, this supposed king, washes feet. It's, it's dumbfounding. It just doesn't compute. And no matter how, how much progress we see in the human experience, it still doesn't compute, does it? It's, it's not, there, there's just, how many kings, how many presidents, how many political leaders... Have you seen since Jesus who said, that's the way I'm going to lead? Dare I say, none. Maybe a few have tried to apply it, but I doubt they would be great examples of it. But that's what we see here. So you can think they're, like, they're, they're listening and they're watching and they're going, okay, how am I to receive this? And I bet the words of Jesus' famous sermon there, right? The Sermon on the Mount, which we studied a couple years ago, are beginning now to ring true. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is sitting on the mount and he's preaching. And verses 2 through 10 tell us about this kingdom. It says, He opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are named sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus moving into this private ministry, he is, he's going to give his disciples more than they could ever want about the kingdom of heaven. And in order for them to grasp 
what that is and to grasp this teaching back on the Sermon on the Mount, he would have to serve them. He serves us. And what we find here in this passage is we kind of move into this, this betrayal and this in, whole encounter about Judas's betrayal is that we find that what Jesus is doing in this initiation act is he's, he is amplifying. He is raising the bar. It, it, it might be comforting, which is wonderful, that our God would serve us. It might be confusing, right, as we've already noted. But it's also crystallizing. God has to serve you to be part of the kingdom of God. You must be last in order to be first, we've heard in other places. And this is the litmus test for those who are part of the kingdom of God, that this is what the change of heart that comes for those who have met Christ. To be part of Christ's mission is to be put on notice that your self-service and your self-motivations and your self-pleasing mentality, and I and all of us in here probably have been included in that at some point in our life, if not even in this morning, that that act reveals what is really going on in our own hearts and what must be rid of through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's saying to you, if you can't grasp this, you will ultimately not be a part of this. And that's what happens with Judas. And that's why Jesus is now moving into this plan where he's preparing his disciples, right? He's preparing his disciples for this pending betrayal. Because this betrayal is going to knock them back a notch or two, isn't it? Someone who's been with them for three years, it's going to catch them off guard. And it's going to be something they can't grasp, and they're going to have, it's going to be dizzying for them in a lot of ways. But here's what we're going to find in this text this morning. Three truths that we're going to kind of need out of this text this morning is this, that betrayal, number one, is intimate and discomforting, is an intimate and discomforting experience. If you've been betrayed, you know what I'm talking about. If you've betrayed someone else, you know what I'm talking about. Betrayal is an intimate and discomforting experience. That's what we're going to see in the first few verses. And number, the second truth we will see is betrayal causes us, catches us by surprise and causes us deep and honest reflection. That's what we're going to see in the second part of our text this morning. And then last, though, we will land with the fact that even in such places, betrayal, God gives us and offers us sovereign assurance. Okay? That's where we're going to go. So that's our first point. First point is there is an intimate and discomforting nature to the betrayal of, that we find here of Jesus. Again, back in verse chapter 18 through 21, there's where we're going to pick up and try to knead out this idea, right? Jesus is telling them in verse 18 that there is one of you, not all of you are part of me. And then again, 13 men who've been with him for three years, that, like, how did they miss that? <laughs> How could you not know that one of you wasn't really on board? But apparently they did not see that, and one of them would betray Jesus. And he's doing this in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but he says the scripture will be fulfilled. And he quotes Psalm 42, or sorry, Psalm 41, verse 9. And he says, He who ate bread, ate my bread, has um, lifted his heel against me. He's saying, in order for things to be fulfilled, I, I, I want you to know that 
what's about to happen is part of God's purposes. Now, if you know anything about Psalm 41, you know that this is David, the psalmist, crying out to the Lord, asking for the Lord to help him deliver him from the desertion he's experienced by his son, Absalom, and all of his faithful counselors. Of course, there's been this big revolt against David during his kingdom. During his kingdom. And as he's crying out for deliverance from these things, he's, what you got to know backstory there is that it wasn't just his son Absalom that was the, the, the hardest part for David. It was trusted brothers who had been with David in his kingdom for a long time, counselors like Ahithophel, who are now participating in counter-espionage against him. This is what's happening in David's life. So what David is crying out to is not something small. He is hurting. Because not only does his son turn against him, but all likelihood, one of his best friends. One of his best friends. We know ultimately David was vindicated from all this, and Absalom's plans fail. Ahithophel eventually sees the error of his own ways, but... The problem when Ahithophel sees this is he sees that the betrayal is so deep on his brother David that he's not sure they can ever reconcile, that David would ever forgive him from his deeds. And what does Ahithophel do? Well, he gets his house in order, and then he takes his life. Obviously, this is a parallel to Judas. Because Judas himself, after a betrayal of Jesus, realizes how far he's gone and how off base he was in his aspirations and how he had missed the, the boat. And what does Judas do? Well, we know he gets his affairs in order. He goes back and tries to give the money back to the, the Pharisees. And then ultimately, he goes out, purchases a piece of land, and takes his own life. Now, we'll come back to why that's important to us here in a little bit. But here's the main idea there, though. Sometimes we find ourselves in such places like this where we've either betrayed, betrayed someone or we've been betrayed by someone, and it's really painful to think about what it looks like to repairing that. And we, like Ahithophel, like Judas, will find ourselves wondering if we can even do it, and it leads us to a despairing of life. But let's keep on, kind of keep on unpacking the story here, right? This story is what? It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a type and a shadow of what is to come in Judas, but more than what's coming in Judas, it's a type and a shadow of really Israel's disobedience. Israel's betrayal, that God would covenant with Israel, and Israel would time and time and time again reject their God, not see him. This is what we see in John chapter uh, 1, 10 and 11, right? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And Judas is just, man, he's just a visualization of something much deeper. That not only did the world reject God, but even the people God chose at times don't receive him. That's hard for us to wrap our brains around, isn't it? But it's what is being displayed for us here in this text. It's not just about Judas. It's about Israel. It's not just about Israel. It's about the disciples. And friends, there I say, sometimes it's not just about the disciples. It can be about us. Amen? We need to think about these things because... Judas 
There's nothing special about Judas. I think sometimes we want to look at Judas's betrayal and we want to think about all the reasons why Judas betrayed and we want to give him a harder time. But Judas ran the race with him for three years. He was faithful to the work. He may not have always gotten it, but the other disciples didn't get it either. How many times were the disciples called out for not getting it? More than we can count, right? So let's not give Judas too hard of a time. Like, here's, like, don't, let's not make Judas something different than us. Because he's really not. But nonetheless, Jesus is unswerved when this reality happens, when he, he knows this is about to take place, and he's, in, he's, he's preparing his disciples for this thing to happen. He's unswerved, and his job is to comfort his people and that they would know that this was all part of God's plan. He says, I'm telling you this now, verse 19, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That... Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever receives me, receives the one who sends me. Well, whoever, I'm sorry, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, that's a picture, of course, that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit, and he himself is sent by the Father, and it's this Trinitarian language going on there. But Jesus is trying to, trying to tell him, like, look, don't, when this happens, when, when all of this is revealed about the one who's going to betray me, your faith is going to be sure because you're going to rest it in the God of the universe. It is all going to be part of God displaying his glory through his son. Jesus is unswerving in his purposes. He wants to care for his people. He wants to care for you and I in the midst of life's deepest pains, deepest betrayals. He's committed to that for his people. He wants his people to come to him and rest in him in the midst of these things. He wants to prepare them for the fallout. I mean, this is, this is one of the one, this is like part of the inner ring. This literally is part of the fellowship of the ring. And he is the equivalent of Boromir. Self-interested, self-congratulatory, thinks he can do things on his own without his God. But he wants them to understand your faith will remain. Sure, I promise you that. Because when all this is over with, you're going to see things that you never thought you could ever see. Of course, we know that being his resurrection. Amen? And so Jesus is preparing them for that. But nonetheless, this doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow another stoic. That he's not somehow detached from the feelings of the moment, right? Because that's what we find in verse 21. Like It says he's troubled in his spirit. And it really bugs me sometimes when people get too overly involved in theology and they try to say things more than the Bible says. And we, this is all over the place. You, there, you can say that God has feelings without attributing emotionalism to God. Okay? So just, can we just put that on the table here? Sometimes people say, well, you got to be careful when you attribute feelings to God. But Jesus came in the flesh. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he came and he experienced the very same things that we've experienced. And so it would be misguided for us to say that somehow Jesus is some, he's just stoic and set us set apart from, from, from the conditions of man and that he doesn't feel the condition that we're in because he himself has done, he's realized everything, he's experienced the same things that you and I have experienced in his flesh. And of course he lived a sinless life, right? That's where we're different, of course. And that's why he's an appropriate savior and atonement for our sin. But it doesn't mean that he can't 
resonate, connect, commune with you and I in the deepest pains of our life. And so he himself is troubled. In fact, it's probably more clearly in the Greek, greatly troubled. Now, he's not troubled by the fact of what's about to happen. Like, he's not troubled by the fact, okay, here's Judas, and he's just going to bring the whole thing down now. He's not worried about what the Pharisees have got plotted. No, he's troubled by the loss of his friendship. He's troubled by the loss of how a brother who could be with you for three years could still walk away. This is what he's troubled by. Before we move on to our, our, our second point, let's just consider how, this, how we might receive this for ourselves. This truth of the intimate and discomforting nature of betrayal, because it is intimate. I dare I say in this room right now that the re, whatever proclivities you have towards relationships, whether that's distance or whatever, they've probably been shaped by some aspect of someone's, of some significant relationship in your life that either was betraying to you or just kind of, you know, reserved, I'm sorry. Whether it's a parent, brother, friend, family, whatever it could be. It could be a lot of different things. And so that makes us must consider this one idea. Betrayal is a bitter pill that many of us will have to swallow at times. Because... Betrayal isn't just like having an expectation of someone and hoping that they do that something and then they fail to do it. That's not betrayal. Betrayal is like a Hithophel. Betrayal is like a Jonathan to David. Betrayal is like a Judas to his brothers. Betrayal is you name your best friend, you name your wife, you name your husband, and betrayal, and that person abdicating their responsibilities, abdicating their commitment to you, that's betrayal. That's betrayal, and it hurts. I bet we've all experienced it in some way, shape, or form in our life. Betrayal is a bitter pill. It breaks trust, and it leaves lasting wounds. If you're in that category here this morning, and maybe you're in that category significantly, maybe you're working through that. In fact, I know a few people in this room who are working through some deep wounds from relationships. Can I just... Ask, just remind you that it's okay for you to acknowledge the bitterness of betrayal. That you can actually, like, God is not telling you to ignore that. Like the Christian, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, about the, the, the connection between sorrow and su- suffering and joy. Sorrow and joy. That sometimes God's greatest most powerful means to lead us to joy is through suffering and through sorrow and through betrayal and through difficult relational circumstances. And I'm just telling you right now, one of the ways that you're going to experience the love and grace and communion of Christ is by you just owning and facing the betrayals of your life, whether you've been the one betrayed or you have been the one who has committed betrayal in some capacity. It is a bitter pill. It does break trust and it can leave, it does often leave lasting wounds. But it's just not that, though. That in spite of that, we have a God, Jesus, our Savior, who is committed to you in the midst of that deep betrayal, and he is committed to your ongoing faith. 
It's what Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. This is the God that we serve, that when we're in the midst of life's most difficult places, particularly relational dysfunction, God is committed to his people. And though you may think your faith is shaky here this morning, God will not let your faith fail. He won't let it fail. See, Jesus identifies with our struggle. And it's just a really wonderful truth for us to consider before we move on. That if God will allow his own son to experience the pain of betrayal, that it's in that experience of a betrayal that you and I are offered comfort. If he will allow his own son to experience that, God himself will be comforting us, would he not, in the midst of our own places of betrayal. So it's not only intimate, it's not only discomforting, but it's also surprising. That's our second idea here. Because we've got to take notice of what happens with the disciples when they hear Jesus. He says, look, I'm, one of you is going to betray me. And in verse 22 through 25, the disciples, especially Peter and John, are like, hold on. One of us? Seriously? One of us is going to betray you? Um, I, I need to know more, Jesus. You can't just like, leave the truth bomb and like, let it sit there, Jesus. I need to know who this is and exactly what's about to take place. Again, one of the inner ring is going to betray Jesus. And by virtue of that, he's going to betray the rest of the brothers as well, right? It's not just one person that's affected by this. It's all those who are committed to the work, right? But here's the thing sometimes when we get caught into the inner ring, right? Is we think that the inner ring means that those are the, always the good guys and the good guys are the ones who are deserving and the good guys never fail and the good guys always succeed. The problem is the Bible doesn't call us good guys. Like it's not just because you're saved here this morning doesn't mean that somehow or another you're saved because you're the good guy. Peter wasn't saved, wasn't called in because he was a good guy. Neither was John or neither one of the other disciples or anyone else who had followed Jesus through time. You're not here because you're the good guy. That's not what the Bible teaches. Israel, the disciples, and even the church at times can be guilty of some of the deepest duplicity, just like our pagan, unbelieving neighbors. And if you don't know what duplicity means, it means divided mind. Divided heart, showing one side to the world while hiding what's really true about yourself behind the, the shadows, right? Even God's people, and we've already noted this, can be guilty of these things. And so when he lays this truth bomb out, Peter's looking around. He's like, okay, well, John, the one Jesus loves, and that's a really interesting little phrase there, that John uses of himself. He says, Peter, and then it's Jesus, the, the disciples that want, the disciple that Jesus loved was sitting by Jesus' side. Of course, that's a reference to John who writes this gospel to us. And let me just clarify something about that. Some of us will say, well, that means Jesus had favorites. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus had a, a ring within the ring, if you will, right? Peter, James, I mean, sorry, Peter and John, they got to see the transfiguration. They certainly were the ones that kind of took some of the more primary leadership within the band of brothers. Um, but this, I don't believe, has anything to do with some kind of favoritism. 
believe this has more to do with the fact of John spilling into his gospel his own experience of Jesus' love. That he knew he was loved. And so when John gives us this, it's not that he's saying, look at me, I'm one of Jesus' little favorites. No, no, I'm loved by Jesus. He don't want, he don't want, it's uncommon, like it changed everything about him. And so when he reflect, when he refers to himself, he's just saying, I'm just a disciple that Jesus loved. He loves me deeply. So who is it, Jesus? And so he, Peter goes, flags down John, like, hey, can you find out what's going on over here? And so John goes back and goes, hey, Jesus, who is it, Jesus? And Jesus is kind to respond, right? It's the one whom I will give this morsel of bread to. Look, at the end of the day, let's just remind ourselves that when God calls us into these places and, and allows these places of deep pain in our lives, he's always near to his people. He never pulls away in his love when we feel so unloved. See, look, here's the deal. Like, I think sometimes, and I've, y'all know I'm, I do counseling on the side some, and one of the things I, I encounter more often than not, and, and listen, I'm encountering this in my own life, so I'm, I'm going to put my own self in this seat is that when I have have experienced betrayal by somebody, ultimately what I'm really feeling is I feel betrayed by God. And here's the wonderful thing about that, is God's not scared of that. He pushes in. He leans back at the table. He says, okay. You're you're scared. You're you're curious. You're, You're wondering going on here but what's more than that is if you go over to matthew's gospel about this whole sequence of events you know what you find is that when jesus lays out this truth bomb about one of them falling into uh, betraying him you know what what happens around the room peter goes um is it me john john goes is it me i'm am i the one am i the one who's going to be guilty It's like, that's a really beautiful truth. The maturity that we find in Christ sometimes is is when we recognize that we can really be honest with ourselves. We'll come back to that here in a few minutes, okay? Nonetheless, when Jesus does tell them who it is, and it seems pretty clear to me, he tells them who it is. I'm giving this morsel, couldn't make it more clear, and we'll give it to this guy, and he's the one who's going to betray everybody. Yet, did you notice the disciples' response when we read the text earlier? When, they, when he does this, they're like, I don't, they didn't understand why he was talking to Jesus and what Jesus was saying to him. Perhaps Jesus was just giving him some orders about the money bag, and, or maybe he's got, you know, something else going on there. They don't understand what's happening. Because it's unfathomable to them that this guy would turn on them. That's why. That's why betrayal hurts so much. Because it surprises us. Betrayal hurts us because it surprises us because it usually comes from a source that we are not ready for it to come from. It's wonderful, isn't it? When we think about these things, 
correctly. See, when we think about this in our own lives, betrayal has this reverberating effect in our lives, and it doesn't just affect one person, it affects the whole community of people around it. But just understand that in God's economy, every one of us is capable of betrayal. Well, we got to look at this and we go, man, that could be me. That could be me. Because I can get, I can let money wrap me up too much in my life. I can let comfort wrap me up too much. I can let the condition of my relationships take on such a, a, a significant part of my life. I can let all kinds of other things get me distracted, and therefore I can be just as guilty of betrayal as Judas can be. Judas was. And again, guys, I just want to say this. This is probably one of the ways in which we see maturity in our lives is when we can be honest about ourselves that I'm capable of Hitler-sized stance just like Judas was. Right? That's a sign of growing maturity in the Christian life is when we are honest with ourselves. I am capable of these things. You are capable of these things. It's not the good guys versus the bad guys. All of us can turn if we're not careful. But the last thing I would say before we move on to our last point is that be careful with giftedness. Be careful with giftedness. Me and uh, a friend of mine, Tyler Crew, were talking about leadership in the church on our podcast this past week. And um, he and I were talking about the fact that what, one of the failures of church leadership is that we look for giftedness, not qualification. And giftedness is not necessarily qualification. You can be a great teacher. You can be a great programmer. You can be all kinds of things. That's indeed what's happened with Judas. He was a guy who was, man, he was a good steward of the money. Always shrewd, always thinking about, is this a waste of money like he did with Mary? (laughs) Apparently he was the one kind of leading the efforts for ministry to the poor. A giftedness doesn't mean qualification. Be careful with that. Be careful that when we are fellowshipping with one another we don't fellowship with one another because of the gifts and the talents that we have but we fellowship with one another because we are people made in the image of god saved sweetly by jesus and by saying that i know about you that you are capable of the deepest sins and the deepest grievances against god and you know the same thing about me without the help of the holy spirit that is true of me this morning and true of you it just is. God's mission, purpose, and purposes are not carried out by the gifted. They're carried out by His grace to qualify people for His mission. That's what He did with the disciples. Peter wasn't qualified. God made him qualified. Judas wasn't qualified. God made him qualified for His role. Peter wasn't qualified. I mean, John wasn't qualified. Whatever. It wasn't, these guys weren't qualified, and neither are you and neither am I. I'm qualified only by the fact that Jesus qualifies me. I can certainly do everything I can to make shipwreck of my qualifications, amen? And so can you. Without God's grace and His Spirit working in our lives, we would make a shipwreck of our lives. And Judas did that. Judas did that. 
But let's be comforted this morning that, that in spite of these realities, in spite of the betrayals we experience or betrayals we, we, we impose on other people, God still sovereignly assures His people in the midst of these things. That God still is present with His people in the midst of these things. Just notice what He does with Judas here. He gives him the morsel. He takes the morsel of bread. And it says that Satan enters into him. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean all of a sudden Judas went from a really good guy to a really bad guy? No, that's not what this means. Again, we've seen kind of some Judas's progress. We've seen some you know, troubling things about Judas already in our time in John. Again, going back to Mary and apparently how he scolded her for her usage, wasteful usage of the perfume. Apparently, obviously, he lost sight of what the king's about. So this is not about the fact that all of a sudden he just went from good to bad. But what this really means is that God had appointed this betrayal. This is the same thing as we find in Job. When Job is acting righteously, and it's annoying the snot out of Satan, he goes before the king of the universe, and what does he have to do? Well, first of all, he tries to antagonize the king. Which doesn't, ever, doesn't end well, does it? <laughs> he tries to antagonize his God and goes, well, look, if you didn't have a hedge of protection around him, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be doing these things. And God says, all right, fair enough. But what's most important about that whole sequence of events is the fact that God is in control of even how sin plays out in our lives at times. Now, again, make sure we hear me say this. That doesn't mean God is the author of sin. But even Satan has to go and get permission from God to do the things that Satan wishes to do. That Satan, as much rule and reign and much power as we give him sometimes in our lives, he doesn't have that because of the lordship of Jesus. And so Jesus is telling him, that it says here, Satan entered into him. This is God appointing him. And what's more is that what Jesus says to him next, he says, what you're about to do, go do it. That's an imperative. Jesus is commanding him to go do what he's about to do. He is giving him permission to do what he's about to do. And, and you know what? I understand that the, 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 how that really kind of can mess with our theodicy, right? Our journey, like, okay, I got I to gotta work on that one. But here's the thing. Just deal with what is revealed. That's what I'm going to do. Go do what you're going to do. I'm, do it. I know what's about to happen. You do what you got to do, bro. And then he went out into the night. Now, of course, that's not an incidental, I don't believe. Um, that's not an incidental uh, note there that he went out in the night because John had, plays a lot of themes on this night, uh, darkness and light and night and daylight and daytime. These all play theological themes in John's gospel. You can remember back to Nicodemus, and what did Nicodemus do? He came to Jesus, what? At night. The picture there is that he's coming out of darkness into what? Into the light of Christ. But what's the picture here? Here's a man who's not, he's leaving the light of Christ, and what's he doing? He's moving out into the darkness. John wants us to take notice of that, I think. 
Look, God's plans are not hopeful possibilities. That's the main idea here, right? God's plans are not hopeful possibilities. It's not that God set up in heaven and going, okay, here's my plan, and I'm going to come up with an infinite amount of, of responses in case mankind doesn't go according to my plan. That's just not how God, God's not out there going, like running this little rat in a cage kind of thing waiting on how you and I respond to everything, and then he's always coming up with these counter-realities, okay? That's not how it works. What God has ordained will come to pass. God's plans are not hopeful possibilities. And, the, and why that's important to you and I this morning from a practical aspect is that that means you and I are secure. Like, if you don't believe in a sovereign God, I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't understand how you could get any comfort from any religion, especially the Christian faith, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Like God himself isn't just hoping things work out. He's ordaining that things are going to work out. He is going to make all things new. Or he is making all things new, excuse me. And because of that, That means Jesus is Lord over your pain. That Jesus is Lord over your betrayals. Jesus is Lord over your failures. And you and I can rest in that. We can heal in light of the gospel. And what God has shown us in his mercy. So as we finish up this morning, I just want to stop and say two things. One is, There's hope, as we've already seen, for those who've been betrayed. I don't have to go back through that again, right? I think it's been pretty clear here that there's hope for those who've been betrayed, those who've experienced deep pockets of betrayal in their relationships. But I also just want to go then end with this other thought, though, is what if, what hope does the person who has been guilty of betrayal have? I mean, for Judas, for Ahithophel, for Peter. Keep reading the chapter, guys. Verses 36 through 38. Jesus has another truth bomb. It's not just Judas who betrays Jesus. Peter does too. And so in that wonderful providence of God, through this text, what you and I can wrestle with is one of two options for us in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our betrayals this morning. Because maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I'm struggling with ways in which I've betrayed relationships or failed in my relationships. And you're wondering, is there any hope for you here this morning? And let me just say that, that you have two options. Option number one is to take the Judas Ahithophel option. And I don't mean that, you know, just going to end in your life. I'm just saying that the option is this, despair that leads to death. And what I mean by despair that leads to death is that in what you see and happen with Ahithophel, what you see happening in Judas is the fact that when they realize that they're on the wrong side of history, they find themselves hopeless. And they find themselves out feeling that they're outside of the mercies of God. That they feel like they're outside of being forgiven or redeemable in some sense or the other. And what that does to us, this despair-driven death, it could certainly lead towards the kinds of things that Judas and Hithophel did, but it could also lead to the person who feels that they can never be forgiven, and so they say, well, what, who cares? 
Who cares how I live? And then just throw everything caution to the wind. I can't tell you how many people I've met like that. I can't tell you how many times I've felt like that. I, right? But that's your option number one. Despair that leads to death. Either death in a short term or death of a long, painful death of living a life apart from God. Or you can take the track that God offers to Peter. Again, if you go to chapter 21, we'll see this in a few weeks, or a couple months actually. You can option the light-driven duty. Because what we find here at the very end, and this will cut to the chase, Peter is invited by Jesus to this meal. And you can imagine Peter after his failures going, am I really, am I really a, a guest that needs to come to this? But nonetheless, Jesus wants Peter at the meal, and Jesus goes directly to Peter and has a specific conversation with Peter. And here's the contours of that conversation. Number one, he invites Peter into communion. Do you love me, Peter? Be my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Be my sheep. You know, you know the whole thing, right? That's an invitation from our God saying, I know what you did, but I'm, my grace still is sufficient for you. Don't forget that the same option was on the table for Judas too. Because Jesus washed his feet as well. It wasn't like one got an offer and the other didn't. Judas just allowed himself to be so caught into despair of his own actions that he gave in to the despair that leads to death. But you and I can, with God's help, delight in, have an option for delight-driven duty. We can give our lives to Christ because he invites us into that communion again, and we know that his grace is sufficient for us. It starts with grace, which leads to delight, which then leads to duty, because that's what he's saying. If you love me, Peter, you know I love you, I'm commissioning you to the work. You, we have these two choices here. Peter must act on that delight. And friends, the same is for you and I this morning. The, the, the same option, it's the same thing that Jesus does when he washes the feet of his disciples, when he invites them to the table that final night before his uh, uh, death and crucifixion. I'm sorry, his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. It's the same thing he does with Peter. It's the same thing he does with every one of us here this morning. Is that he offers us communion and he says, follow me. Follow me. You can choose despair that leads to death. Or you can choose delight that leads to duty. Those are the two options we have. And as we come to the table, you come to this table this morning... With delight. Not delight in yourself. Not in delight in what you've done for Jesus. But delight that God has what he's done for you to overcome the death that has corrupted your own heart and soul so that you might have life. And then that then propels you into something different. Guys, when we are betrayed or when we are being guilty of betrayal, we have a God who is sufficient for us. And that's it.
all it is, the Christian life is. God, help us this morning as we finish up this time. 